My task this morning is a great one. It's a great task, and it's a great tax task because it is both very important and because it is immense. It is an immense task. And that task is the task of leadership. It's the task of leadership. And it's frankly too great of a task for me to bear. As Paul said, who is sufficient for such things? If my task is leadership, then my goal this morning is to give direction to this church uh, under, of course, the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, but as your pastor, as your senior pastor, and as one of your elders. Uh, that is my goal to give direction to this church as, a great and as, a har- as great and as hard as that task may be. I do believe it's necessary. It is a necessary task this is one of the reasons why I, you know, we as elders, we, we put this Vision Sunday out here every year. It's, it's an opportunity to hold ourselves accountable to giving direction to the church. And it's an opportunity for you to hold us accountable to where are we going? What is our direction? So every year, we have this opportunity at the beginning of the year, a prayer Sunday and a Vision Sunday, to pray and ask, ask for God's help, and then also to talk about where are we going? Where are we going and how are we going to get there? I'm going to assume that you believe it's the role of an elder to give direction to the church. I'm not going to argue for that this morning. I'm going to assume you believe that's true. And I'm going to also assume that you believe key leaders in the Bible, such as Moses and Joshua and Nehemiah and the Lord Jesus Christ, all led and ministered according to some kind of vision or mission or strategy. You think about Jesus' last words. I mean, what does he do with his last words? He gives us a mission, right? Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Jesus himself is mission-oriented, you might say. He gives us a mission. And so in accepting those assumptions, what does this aspect of leadership look like? What does it look like to give direction What does it look like to cast a vision, to develop a mission? Now, of course, there are lots of ways that you could answer that question. However we answer the question, what does it look like to cast a vision or develop a mission? However we answer that question, something we have to avoid, I would argue, is to think incrementally. We have to avoid thinking incrementally. What do I mean by that? Well, when we, when we think about, when we think in, incrementally or we, we plan, you might say, incrementally, we're thinking in terms of small changes, small changes or stages. That's what it means to think incrementally. I'll give you an example. In his book, Atomic Habits, maybe some of you have read that book. It's a very popular book. James Clear writes about a, he's the author, he, he writes about a professional cycling team who changed the world of cycling. This, this example really resonated with me because I like to ride a bike. <laughs> so it really resonated, but he talks about a professional cycling team that changed the world of cycling by adopting a principle called, quote, the aggregation of marginal gains. The aggregation of marginal gains. He writes, quote, the whole principle came from the idea that if you broke down everything you could, everything you could think of that goes into riding a bike and then improve it by 1%, you would get a significant increase when you put all of them together, all those little marginal gains. This is what it means to think incrementally. As parents, we think incrementally when we urge or when we command our kids to eat just a few more vegetables before we dismiss them from the dinner table, as if, you know, those few extra bites might actually win them to the, the, the taste and the flavor of veggies. That didn't work for me. Teachers think incrementally when they urge their students to put in just a little bit more effort to earn that coveted A. Understand, it's not that there's no place for thinking incrementally. I'm not saying that. It's just that thinking incrementally is a kind of productive navel-gazing when it comes to long-term direction. And so when we think about long-term direction, long-term vision, we have to think differently. We can't navel-gaze. We have to think in a different way. And so my point is that to cast a vision or to develop a mission, we have to adopt a different kind of thinking. We can't think incrementally. We need to think navigationally. 
kind of contrasting those two ideas, thinking incrementally over and against thinking navigationally. Now, imagine a navigator that is a captain of a ship. If, if he were to leave port, only thinking in terms of, quote, the aggregation of marginal gains, imagine what would happen. Imagine if the helmsman of the ship aimed to reach his final destination only by constantly resetting his course, resetting his course and remarking his position. What would happen to him? Well, he'd be lost at sea, would he not? The only way that navigator is going to reach his destination is to begin with what? With his final destination. That's the only way he's actually going to be able to effectively set a course for that destination and to reach that destination, you might say. He must begin with his final destination. I kind of picked on parents a little bit and picked on teachers, but you know, parents think this way when they actually think about what is my ultimate goal as a parent? I have a child, what's my goal with this? My goal with this child is to, is to raise them up to be a, an independent, Christ-loving individual. However you want to capture that, but you want them to be independent and you want them to love Jesus. That's where I'm going to start. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to step back and then I'm going to make decisions to build and towards that ultimate goal. As a teacher, it's the same thing. What do you do with a teacher? When you craft a lesson, you begin with goals. What are my goals for this lesson? And then you start, you work all the way back in order to achieve those goals. When I write a sermon, I don't write the sermon until I know what am I, gonna, what am I aiming at. I don't do anything until I find that, what I call that thesis statement or that big idea. I'm working for hours trying to find that statement. Once I get that sentence, now it's easy. Now I'm just arguing for that sentence. That's what we do uh, so, so those are examples of thinking navigationally, thinking navigationally. So the navigational leader must begin with a vision. He must begin with a destination. He must have a clear picture of the destination before he can think strategically. Once the destination becomes clear, the goal becomes clear, the navigational leader can look backwards and he can ask, how do we get there? What does it look like to get there? What will it take to get us there? How will we have to act? So, Rosedale Bible Church, where are we headed? What is our ultimate goal? What does the, the port look like across the sea? Well, you know that because we say it all the time. Our destination is our vision statement. We see people hungry for God's word, sacrificially caring for one another, and desperate to reach the lost. We say this all the time. This is, this is our ultimate goal. This is our vision statement. This is the way, really, essentially what we're saying is that this is the way that we make disciples, or this is what a disciple looks like, you might say, at Rosedale Bible Church. That's, our, that's all we're saying. We're just coming up with a creative way of saying, what do you do at RBC? We make disciples, okay? What does that look like? Well, here's what it looks like. We hunger for God's word. We're sacrificially caring for one another and we're desperate to reach the lost. That's what discipleship looks like at Rosedale Bible Church. And so you know that. That's the ultimate vision of RBC and that's not changing. That's static, you might say. And so the question I want to answer this morning is how are we going to get there? How are we going to get there? Now, to be clear, I do think there are, there's not one answer to this question. There are many ways that we could get there. And in fact, I think over the course of the, the life of this church, I think the Lord might give us a host of different answers to the question. And I'm excited to see what God, how God will answer that question. How are we going to uh, actually arrive at that destination here at Rosedale Bible Church over the next 20 years? We might have different answers to that question, and that's good. The question I'm trying to answer this morning is in 2024. <laughs> so right now, for this next year, what does it look like for us to achieve that vision or, or point the bow of the ship, you might say, toward that destination? And so what does this journey toward our vision look like in the year 2024? 
Well, our aim in 2024 can be captured in this simple phrase, which you know it, I've already shared it with you, contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. And this vision, this mission, has three expressions, and this is what I'm going to explain this morning from our text. It will be, in our, aim, it will be our aim in 2024 to, number one, contend for God's word, number two, contend for one another, and number three, contend for the lost. So this is what we're going to unpack in this morning's message. It'll be my goal then in the time remaining this morning to convince you to take up this goal with us to take up this goal with your leaders and with me. And to do that, I'm going to argue from the book of Jude, verses 17 through 23. Jude, 17, Jude verses 17 through 23. And if you haven't turned that, you can turn there. You can turn there in your Bible as we begin, at least to the letter of Jude. We'll look at a couple verses before we actually get to those verses. But um, this is the second to last book of the Bible, and so you have to go nearly to the end to find the letter of Jude. It's a very short letter. In fact, it doesn't even have a chapter. Well, I guess it does have a chapter, but there's no big one, right? Big number one. It's just verses uh, because it's a short letter. There's only 25 verses in this short letter. Jude, the author of this letter, was the brother of James, and both Jude and James were half-brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, Jude doesn't capitalize on the fact that he was related to Jesus because he calls himself in verse 1 there a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. So he doesn't capitalize on that familial relationship that he has with Jesus as he considers himself a slave of Christ. Now, Jude has a clear purpose for writing this letter. I love when the authors in the Bible give us a clear purpose statement. It really helps to understand the letter. And and Jude does that in verse 3. He tells us why he's writing. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, he says, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so apparently, Jude sat down to write this letter, and he was trying to write a different letter. He wanted to write a letter about their common salvation. I imagine, I don't know what that letter would have looked like, but it would have been encouraging to hear Jude unpack all the details about salvation. However, something happened, something changed in this context, and Jude had to write them a different letter. He had to write this letter about uh, contending, encouraging them to contend for the faith. And so he has to write this letter because opponents have ro- risen up and they have disrupted the church. Look at verse 4. For certain people, he says, have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master, the Lord Jesus Christ. So certain people have come into the church, they've crept in, they've caused problems, and so now Jude has to write a letter to encourage the believers to contend for their faith in the, in the midst of false teachers, basically. And so what Jude does through the bulk of this letter, which is, is quite complex and hard to interpret in, in very many places, in verses 5 through 16, what he does is he addresses those false teachers, He explains how these false teachers are fruitless, they're directionless, and ultimately will be destroyed by Jesus when he returns. It's then in verses 17 through 23, what Tim read this morning, that Jude makes a transition and he addresses the Christians or the believers directly. And it's these verses that will be our focus this morning. And so here's our big idea. You'll see it up there on the screen. This is our big idea this morning. Three expressions... Three expressions teach us how to contend for the faith. Three expressions teach us how to contend for the, for the faith. Why? So that, here's your purpose statement, so that RBC might not stumble and will stand blameless before God in 2024. This is our big idea, our thesis statement and our purpose statement this morning. So with that in mind, look down at verses 17 through 19. But you, 
Must remember, beloved, Jude writes, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They, that is the apostles, said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these, those false teachers, who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. This is where our text begins, and this is where we find our first expression, and it's simply this. We have to contend for God's word. We have to contend for God's word. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, notice first that Jude says that we are to remember. We are to remember. Beloved, he says, remember, beloved, the prediction, predictions of the apostles. And so the first way we contend for God's word is to remember God's word. You should know that remembering in the Bible, remembering in the scriptures, is more than recollection. It's more than recollection. recollection. It's more, more than remembering the, the combination to uh, you're safe, the combination to the, the lockout here, the, the trash that I seem to always forget, and it's just our phone number, <laughs> or some algorithm to a Rubik's Cube. It's more than that. It's more than that. To remember is to take to heart in the Bible. It's to have something imprinted upon your life. There's a parallel passage in 2 Peter Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Peter says, he, he writes, he is writing to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should, he says, remember the predictions of the holy prophets. It's almost exactly the same words that Jude uses, that you are to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and, number two, he says, to remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And so the idea of to remember is to remember what Scripture says, but also to remember the commandments. And so it's more than just bringing them to mind. The idea there is that you would take them into, into your heart, that you would imprint them upon your life. And so we must, this is what the idea of remembrance is in the Bible, which is not dissimilar from the idea of meditation. The idea of meditation, taking it into your heart, imprinting it upon your life. Recall Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, what does he do? He meditates. He meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Well, we think about what we delight in, do we not? Is there anything that can distract young lovers from the thought of each other? Of course not, because they delight in each other. So the scriptures call us to delight in, to meditate on, to remember the predictions of the apostles and the prophets and the commandments of the Lord, to take them in, to imprint them upon our life and in our heart. And so in order to contend for the faith, we must contend for God's word and to contend for God's word is to remember God's word. Like a tree that thrives next to a stream of water, we must drink in the water of Scripture. I mean, what is the New Testament but the predictions of the apostles? It's what it is. Our faith is founded on the apostles' teaching. So then how do we contend for God's word? Well, we have to remember it first. There's a second action, and it comes from the specific prediction that Jude is talking about. And, so, and he is talking about a specific prediction, and what is that? We'll look at verses 17 through 19 again. But you remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, here's the specific thing they said, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. The second action is this, we are to remember, but also we are to anticipate trouble. We are to anticipate trouble. The, the apostles anticipated that scoffers would arrive in the last day, that they would arrive in the last day and they would pursue ungodly actions. By the way, a scoffer is a mocker, right? It's a person who ridicules, who makes fun of someone. That's what a scoffer is. In the vernacular, a scoffer is really just a hater, we might say, in our day. 
And so notice Jude says these haters will arrive in the last time. And what is the last time? Well, the last time or the the last days refers to that period of the coming of Jesus, what you might call the church age. It's right now, the period in which we live. It includes the period of the early church all the way up through Jesus' second coming. These are the last days, the last times. Therefore, these words of Jude are neither for some previous people, nor are they for some future people. They're for us now. Jude is writing to us because we're in the last days, the last times. And so Jude wants us to anticipate trouble. He wants us to anticipate trouble. If you're familiar with the New Testament, then you you know that warnings about such people are part of the common stock of Christianity. It's all over the New Testament. You can't get around it. Paul warned the Ephesian elders, after my departure, fierce wolves, he says, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul wrote, 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times, there it is again, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Jesus himself said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. I wish I could tell you that church is going to be hunky-dory. I wish I could tell you that, but it's not the truth. It's not the new, that's not the, the way the New Testament talks about the church. Jesus, Paul, Jude, they teach us that we are going to have to contend for the faith. And we're going to have to contend for God's word. Now, the specific threat that Jude speaks of involves people who mock at goodness. This is what he's talking about here. They mock at goodness, and they have ungodly passions. He says these ones, they they cause divisions. They're worldly-minded. They're devoid of the Spirit. They're spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. They might have been physically alive, but they were never regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You remember what Paul wrote to to Titus in Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, are there parallels between this warning from Jude and our day, what we're experiencing in the church? Well, I think there are. Well, there are certainly many dangerous threats to the church today. It may be the wholesale rejection of morality that best parallels the words of Jude here. It's one thing for the world to accept promiscuity and homosexuality. It's something else when the church begins to soften its stance on such things. It's very sad. I wouldn't hold the RCC up as, or the Roman Catholic Church as, wouldn't hold them up as a bastion of truth. But it is very significant that the Pope recently decided to allow priests to bless homosexual relationships. That is very telling. I would say it's another marker that a broad acceptance of promiscuity and homosexuality are at the doorstep of the church. I'm not saying that the Roman Catholic Church is the church. When you think of all of Christendom, it is very telling that that's the direction they're moving. Actually, in many places, people who approve such things have broken into the church. It's no longer at the doorstep, but it's in the church, approving such things. And they're spreading a doctrine of demons. And friends, to anticipate trouble is to prepare for it. It's our duty to respond to it. We shouldn't be surprised when opposition comes against the church. We should anticipate it and we, we should be prepared to address it. It's what it means to contend for the faith and to contend for God's word. In fact, I think foreseeing the arrival of opposition strengthens our faith in some ways. This was predicted. It's exactly what we were told would happen in the church. And so here we are, living it. 
No threat is outside God's control. He's sovereign over all of it. It's been foreseen and it's been predicted. Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And yet, if our church, if RBC is going to contend for God's word, friends, it's going to take backbone. It's going to take backbone. It's going to be harder than you could ever imagine. We can't merely be persuaded that God's word is true. Friends, we have to be thoroughly convinced that God's word is objectively true. Thoroughly convinced. Do we preach and teach non-negotiable truths or not? Non-negotiable. It's not nego- we don't negotiate promiscuity. We don't negotiate homosexuality. It's a non-negotiable. The Bible calls us to something different, something better. Christ calls us to something better. Christ calls the church to something better. Friends, this is what gives us power. How can we advance the gospel if we acquiesce? What are we calling people to? Come into the church and act the same way as the world. That's no gospel. It doesn't set us apart. For us to contend in 2024, church, we must not merely believe. We must be convinced. We must contend for God's word. The church isn't a club. It's not a social hub. It isn't a place to plug in or get connected. It isn't a place to feel nourished or have an experience. That's not what the church is. You know what the church is? It's a pillar and support of the truth. Do you realize that? That's what the church is. If the church is going to get, if we're going to be connected, if we're going to find any social experience here, it's all secondary to what the church actually is, which is the support and buttress, the foundation for the truth. That's what it primarily is. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 3 that the wisdom of God is manifested to the heavenly places, to the rules in the, in, outside of this world because we stand on what the truth is. And if we acquiesce, if we do not contend for the truth and contend for God's word here, where will they find it? Where could we find the truth? Where else would truth ever be found if there were no church? Do you realize that there's no place in all of the universe, all of God's creation, that truth can be found except for right here? That's what the church is. It's a pillar and support of the truth. And if we give that up, if we don't have backbone to fight for it, think about what we're giving up on. Where would they go? They would be totally lost. We must contend for God's word. What Jude wants us to understand is that we're not at play with the church. I don't know if you want to call it, you know, we have to have a militant church, uh, you know, pipers don't waste your life. However you want to char- characterize it, we're not at play, we're at war. This is what Jude wants us to understand, is that we're at war. We must contend for the faith, we must contend for God's word. And so, moving on, in verses 20 and 21, Jude lays out a second expression The second expression, and it's this, contend for one another. We contend for God's word and we contend for one another. Look down at verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Church, if we're going to stand against opposition, if we're going to stand for the truth, Well, we're never going to do that if we don't stand together. We must grow together. We must keep ourselves within the sphere of God's love. How is that possible? 
How do we contend for one another? Well, there's four things that Jude gives us here. The first thing he says is we are to build one another up in the faith, to build one another up in their faith. He says, uh, says they're building yourselves up in your most holy faith, but that preposition is better probably on here, building each other up on the most holy faith, on the most holy faith. And so Jude is using the metaphor of a building, and the foundation in this instance, the foundation is the, is the faith, which I think what he's talking about here is the body of doctrine or the body of teaching given to the church. We are to build each, each other up on that body of doctrine that was handed over to us by the apostles, which would fit really well with verse 3 again, where he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, and he says, that was once for all delivered to the saints. So that faith is that body of doctrine that was given to us. All that's taught in the New Testament was given to us from the apostles to teach and to preach and to proclaim to one another and to the world. So we build each other up on that foundation is what he's saying. And so the body of teaching was delivered to the saints. And, and the, the, the thing that sits at the center of that body of doctrine, the gem at the center is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that sits at the center of everything that's handed over to us. And so to build ourselves up in the faith is to speak the gospel into each other's lives. Here's a second way we contend for one another. Look at verse 20 again. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith or on the most holy faith and praying, he says, praying in the Holy Spirit building one another up in the faith and praying for one another in the Spirit. Ephesians 6.18 says we are to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. We are to keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Praying for one another is the warp and woof of the Christian life. Paul went even so far as to say pray without ceasing. Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more plausible than to be alive without breathing. And Jude seems to be saying, to be a Christian who doesn't pray for other Christians is akin to leaving our brothers and sisters alone and unguarded in an open field. You can illustrate this through the prophet Samuel. He understood this truth. We're often hard on Israel for choosing Saul as their king, and rightly so. It was a mistake. But we don't oftentimes remember that they actually sought repentance for doing that. They went to Samuel. They confessed that as sin. And so 1 Samuel 12, 19, they cried out to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Help us. We've sinned by doing this. And so Samuel then understood his own personal responsibility to pray for them, as he said. This is 1 Samuel 12, 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Although Israel acted foolishly, even sinfully, Samuel declared that to stop praying for his people would be sin. It would be sin to not plead for them. Well, church, if we're going to contend for the faith in 2024, we must contend for one another in prayer. We must contend for one another in prayer. Here's a third way we contend for one another, and it's given to us in verse 21. It says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. We are to keep one another in God's love. This is the third, the third item here. This is the main verb of the section, actually. And so whatever else we say about contending for one another, this is the main idea. If we are building up one another, if we are praying for one another, or as we'll see in a moment, if we're waiting with one another, however we're contending for one another, we're doing it under the shadow, you might say, of keeping one another in the love of God. What does it look like to keep one another in God's love? What does that look like? 
Well, the sense here is to help one another remain within the sphere of God's love or in a, a place of blessing, you might say. I don't know if you're familiar with Ted Tripp's book on parenting. It's a phenomenal book. It's called Shepherding a Child's Heart. If you're a parent and you haven't read it, you need to go read it. If if you're not a parent and you want to be a parent, you hope to be a parent, read it. If you're just a normal person who maybe your kids are grown, you should still read it. It's that good. It's a phenomenal book. It's called Shepherding a Child's Heart, and it's by Ted Tripp. In that book, he talks about the circle of blessing, the circle of blessing. Using Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, he urges that children find a place of blessing when they honor and obey their parents. When children stay in the circle, the circle of blessing, he says, all things being equal, things will go well, and they will have a long life. Think about the book of Proverbs, right? If we're... Proverbs aren't promises that everything's going to work out for us, but, it, but if we adopt those principles, God's revealed will for us in our lives, all things being equal, we'll have a long life. Things will go well for us. So this is the idea of the circle of blessing that Tripp talks about. When children step outside of that circle, they're stepping into danger. They're stepping outside of God's revealed will for them. They don't honor their parents they don't do what their parents tell them. They, they put themselves in a dangerous play, place. And so the idea of a parent, the responsibility of a parent, is to draw our children where? Back to the circle of blessing. And how do we do that? Well, as parents, we do that with correction and discipline. That's the parent's responsibility. God has given us those tools to move our children back to the circle of blessing. And so... While there might be unique aspects to the parent and child relationship, the idea of drawing a person back to the circle of blessing is not unique to parenting. That principle is found in the church, and it's found in our personal relationships. You and I are called to contend for one another by keeping one another within the sphere of God's love. That's what church discipline is for. That's why we go to each other when there's sin in the body, we, we talk to each other to draw each other back to the sphere of God's love. The circle of blessing as Tripp coins it. Listen very carefully to the words of Jesus. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Jesus says, abide. Listen carefully. Abide in my love, Jesus says. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so what does it look like to abide in the love of Jesus? To stay within the sphere of God's love? What does Jesus say? How do we do that? Keep his commandments. Do what he says. Honor him with our lives. To keep the commandments is to be found within the circle of blessing. Does that mean you'll have a personal jet? You'll drive a Maserati? No. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that if you obey my commandments, you'll abide in my love, and what? Your joy will be full. Right? In the same way that that child that remains in the circle of blessing can find joy when there's order, there's discipline, when there's correction. That's where the place of joy is. Not the lawless place outside the circle. There's no joy there. And so as a church, as a body, we keep each other within the sphere of God's love. We labor to do that with one another. That is what Jude is calling us to do. And so to stand within the sphere of God's love is to stand within the sphere of joy. And so if we're going to contend for the faith, if we're going to contend for one another in 2024, we must build one another up in the faith on the body of doctrine that is the church. We must pray for one another in the spirit. We must keep one another in the love of God. And finally... We must hope with one another for the return of Christ. Look at verse 21 again. Excuse me. 
Yeah, 21 again. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting, he says, for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Waiting. Now, I know waiting isn't hoping, but that's the idea here, right? That's the kind of waiting he's talking about. He's he's talking about hoping for that day that Jesus would return, Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so how can waiting and hoping for something be used to contend for the faith? It sounds very passive. My friend Smedley Yates, he wrote a book about this. It's called Wait. He uses an illustration in that book. Imagine an ordinary day. You wake up, you drink coffee, put your trousers on, you go to work, Imagine you arrive at work and there's a nondescript envelope laying on your desk. You know, one of those manila envelopes. It's laying there on your desk, and so you sit down at your desk to do your work, and you open up that envelope, you pull it out, and you discover that there's a certificate in that envelope. And it's a certificate that says that you've been declared a citizen of an entirely different country. And it's a country you've never heard of. You've never heard of this country, but you've been declared a citizen. And so you jump on your computer, right? You're sitting at your desk, and you begin to scour Wikipedia. You punch in the country, and you realize you've, somehow that this country has evaded you. You missed it in geography class. You've never heard anyone talk about it. It's a mysterious country. But as you begin to do some research here, you discover that this country has a bustling economy. There's no crime to speak of. It's, it has an idyllic climate. The images, as you scroll through the images, the, the, the images are breathtaking. It's like Ireland, right? Those beautiful, luscious green hills. It's beautiful images of this place, better than every vacation brochure you've ever seen. You discover that this country has a very strict immigration policy, the strictest you've ever heard of, so strict that the only entrance into this country is by birth. It's the only way. You take another look at the certificate, and you, there it is. You've been declared a citizen of this country. Your research continues. It reveals that this country is a monarchy. There's a king that sits on the throne. He has absolutely no rival. No rival. His governance is unmatched. Every citizen is blessed And every one of his subjects prospers under his reign. Imagine the thoughts that would flood your mind. Your life would be fundamentally altered that very moment. Everything would have changed. The way you do your work, the way you parent, the nondescript envelope on your desk would be life-transforming. Christian, you don't need to imagine that. That's our story. That's our narrative. That's what happened to us as Christians. That's actually the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. He says in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, he says, And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject subject all things to himself. That's our king. And we're citizens of that kingdom right now. This is how waiting is used to contend for the faith. We belong to heaven. We wait for Jesus. And friends, we will be changed. That's the truth. And so when your brother's homesick, when the world is creeping at your sister's door and has invaded her life or his life, when you can't make friends, when your kids slam the door, when work is overwhelming, 
you pull out that envelope, right? You pull out that certificate. You're a citizen, you're a citizen of heaven. Heaven is our home. Help one another contend for the faith with this. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Amen? So how are we going to contend for one another in 2024? We're going to build one another up in the most holy faith. We're going to pray for one another in the Holy Spirit. We're going to keep one another in the love of God. And we're going to wait with one another for the return of Christ. Now there is a third expression here. I promised you three. And there's still time on the clock. This third one will go quickly. There's a third and final expression. Let me review where we've been. This is the big idea, as you recall, this morning. I told you that we'll learn how to contend for the faith in three expressions. Three expressions. In order that RBC might not stumble and stand blameless before God in 2024. The first expression was contend for God's word. The second expression was contend for one another. And the third and final expression is this, contend for the lost. Contend for the, for the lost. Look down at verses 22 and 23. Jude says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, he says, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. I know this is somewhat abstract here. It's hard to understand when you haven't meditated on it for some time. But what you need to know is that there are three groups of people here that Jude is talking about. There are three kinds of lost people, you might say. Have mercy on those who doubt. That's the first group. Save others, he says. That's the second group. By snatching them out of the fire. And then there's a third group. He says, to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And so the first group, they're at odds with themselves. They are those who doubt. They are wavering. Apparently, the teaching of the false teachers has caused them to doubt the truths of the faith. Jude says we must contend for this group with patience and mercy. The second group needs to be addressed more directly. We're commanded actually to save them by snatching them from the fire. Now, we know that God is the ultimate source of salvation, but Jude teaches us that we are God's instruments. We're God's instruments for snatching people from the very fires of hell. And the idea of snatching there is to to grab someone unwilling. They don't want to go. They don't want to come with us. And we're, we're pulling them out of the fire. That's the sense there in that word. And so it's to take a person by force. And we take them from the very fires of hell. And to do this, we're going to have to be direct. It's a symptom of individualism that we so often leave people to their own will. It's kind of the culture of the day, the spirit of the age, spirit of individualism. You just kind of let people go. We don't ask, they don't tell. It's also a symptom of the American version of freedom. We're free to make our own decisions. We can do as we like. It's a good thing, but it's a bad thing, bad thing as well. And so as a result, we've grown accustomed to saying nothing, to saying nothing to our brothers and sisters, even those who are so swept up by error that they're close to the very fires of hell, as Jude is saying. So Jude teaches us that true Christianity knows such freedom. We don't allow people to slide into the hell. We snatch them out of the fire. We confront them. Again, it's the same parallel idea. We keep them in the love of God. We're going to fight for our brothers and sisters. And so we don't allow the people we love to slide towards destruction. We are called to snatch them from the fires of hell. The third group, well, they've gone headlong into error, as you can see. They've embraced immorality and false beliefs to such a degree that it becomes actually dangerous even to come to their aid. This is why Jude says, have mercy with fear. 
Barclay says, there's a danger to the sinner, but there's also a danger to the rescuer. He, would, he who would cure an infectious disease always runs the risk, risk of infection. And so we have mercy with fear. The fear Jude speaks of comes from the idea that if we come too close, we actually might be tainted by deceptive lies. We might fall into their false belief as well with this third group. And Jude ends the passage using this graphic language to make his point. The word that he uses for garment here describes the clothing worn underneath the outer tunic, what we would call underwear. He's speaking of underwear. And you can imagine then when he meet what he means when he speaks of that garment being stained by the flesh. And so in the way that we're wary of touching an undergarment, we should be wary of getting too close to those defiled by corrupt those who are defiled by corrupt teachers and by false teaching. We have to be very careful as we approach them. And so, in summary, how are we to contend for the lost? Well, we show mercy on those who are wavering. We save those who are being captured, and we are to be cautious when dealing with the defiled. Show mercy, he says, with fear. So we have three expressions then that teach us to contend for the faith. Church, we are to contend for God's word. We are to contend for one another. And we are finally to contend for the lost. These are the three expressions that I spoke of. And so will you pursue these things with me and with your elders in 2024? I hope you will. I hope you will. I pray that you will. Church, Judas is teaching us that the survival and prosperity of the church requires perseverance and care. We must be on the defense, always remembering that we're at war, as we said. We must be on the offense, diligently building, diligently praying, keeping, and waiting with one another. We must be bold. We must contend for the faith. The, the Christian life is a pilgrimage and a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6, the armor of God. We're at war. But in the end, we will win. We will be triumphant. Look how Jude closes this letter. Remember I gave you that so that statement in our thesis. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is our goal in 2024, that together we would contend for the faith in order that RBC, as Jude says, might not stumble and would stand blameless before God in 2024. Amen.